The philosopher Jacob Needleman, in his book, Time and the Soul, he shares a story that he heard during travels in Central Asia some years back. It's a captivating story about a young merchant who was lost in the desert, a desert that has been given the name Semostrecha. It's named for the experience of this young merchant. He had become lost. The sand was shifting beneath his feet. The wind was swirling about and kicking up dust. And landmarks that he had trusted were obscured until somehow, along the way, he encountered another traveler. Another traveler who gave him aid, who ultimately led him out into safety. Only when he turned to thank this man, the story goes, he was astonished to see the man lower his scarf, reveal his face. And through hallucination or mirage or perhaps something else altogether, the young merchant felt that he was looking at the face of his older self. And so through this story, the desert was given its name, Simostrecha, a name that had endured for generations and when translated means the desert where we meet ourselves. Now, Christians know this desert by a different name, the name of Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter, 40, which is biblical shorthand for a really long time. It's a way of resonating with other key 40s that we find in sacred Hebrew memory, the flood's 40 days of rain in Genesis, or Moses' 40 days without food on Mount Sinai, or Elijah's 40 days as he journeyed to Mount Horeb or Israel's 40 years of wilderness wandering. And of course, for Christians, there is this connection to Jesus' 40 days in his own desert of discernment and discovery. 40 days and three temptations and how many untold number of miles walked around in that desert. But I think amidst all of that, the testing of Jesus might ultimately be summed up by one singular phrase that we hear from the tempter again and again, if you are the Son of God. Well, by now in the Gospel story, Jesus' identity as the Son of God has been pretty clearly established. It's been declared at His birth. It's been carefully traced in His genealogy. It has rung out from the heavens at His baptism. We have seen it again and again in the story, but we are left to wonder if Jesus Himself fully believed it. Because this desert comes before Jesus has been said to heal anyone. This is before He's told a parable, or gathered a great crowd. He's not yet the quotable, powerful, charismatic Christ that we come to know so well and believe in so fully. He is just straight out of the waters of baptism. His hair is still drying. He is quite literally wet behind the ears. As Frederick Buechner has written, this is a critical moment in the story because this is the moment where Jesus decides what it means to be Jesus. And the words of the tempter ring out amidst it, if you actually are the Son of God. The poet Mary Oliver asks a stirring question in her poem that some of you may know, The Summer Day. Tell me, she asks, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Of course, the poet asks this question as she's contemplating meadows and grasshoppers, but this question visits Jesus in a far less picturesque and comforting scene. 
He's in the desert, a desolate place without water with all of that shifting sand and compromised vision and obscured landmarks that had once guided the way. Just after his baptism, the Spirit is said to send him into this desert, driving him or shoving him, the language says quite literally. This is an early sign that Jesus would spend his life in desolate places in our world. Places where people have real deep questions of survival. Places where people are struggling to see God at all. Where the things that they have counted on to sustain them, they now seem dry or hollow. When the things that had guided them are now somehow hidden from them. Now some deserts are fixed literal points on a map. Well these are the ones that many of us can learn to avoid or afford to route our lives around. But then there are these other deserts. There are places in our day-to-day or somewhere in our souls, like the ones that Barbara Brown Taylor has described. She says maybe the desert just looked like a hospital waiting room for you. Or maybe it was the cheap sheets on the motel bed after you got kicked out of your house. Or maybe it looked like the parking lot where you couldn't find your car on the day that you lost your job. Or it may have been a kind of desert in the middle of your own chest where you begged for a word from God and you heard nothing but the wheezing bellows of your own breath. Yes, we know the desert, don't we? All too well. And so we also know the questions that find us there. The if that rings out in the centers of our own lives. If you are who you say you are, then what will you do? Turn stones into bread. Throw yourself down from the temple mount. Take control of all of the kingdoms of the world. This is what rings out for Jesus. And these are three rather intriguing offers. None of them actually are all that bad because death rarely looks clearly like death. And So why don't you turn stones into bread, the tempter asks. Well, in a world of great hunger, couldn't that be quite useful? Just think of all the people that that kind of magic could feed. Or then he's tempted to free fall from the pinnacle of the temple, maybe a little overdramatic, but in a world of such overwhelming cynicism, couldn't we use a little bit of wonder to help inspire belief? And then the tempter shows him all of the kingdoms of this world. These can be yours. You can have full political and social control if, if, and I admit, sometimes I almost wish Jesus had sort of caved in right here. Brought a little more justice and order to the world and all of its governments. But in each case, the answer is no. It's this decisive, emphatic no. And it's not really because the temptations are evil. Because temptation doesn't show up with horns and a red spandex suit and a pitchfork. For Jesus, for all of us, the voice of evil, it often sounds an awful lot like the voice of good. Take care of yourself. Prove your faith. Save the world. Things that are not destructive on the surface. Yes, when we hear talk of temptation, it's usually describing that irresistible urge to do something that we already know is going to ultimately be bad for us or even destroy us eventually. You know, that sort of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas type of stuff. The stuff we know is wrong, but that we're drawn to do, pulled to do all the same. But more often than not, the greatest trials are in those things that can appeal to our good intentions. That's why some prefer to think of this scene 
not as temptation so much as testing. Because none of the questions are inherently, obviously evil. It's just that all of them ask Jesus to be something other than He is. What sort of son of God will you be if you are at all? The tempter asks. What are you going to do with your life? What does it mean to be Jesus? One scholar has described this scene as though Jesus is fighting for His life. And not simply for the survival, the bread that the tempter sets before Him. That's the stuff of merely getting by. No, in the desert, Jesus is fighting for what will the definitive feature of His life be. See, at this moment, Jesus is facing the greatest test, which is never to do the thing that we know will destroy us, but instead to give our lives to the things that ultimately cannot save us. The greatest temptation is this. It is to become something that we were not created to be. And these temptations, they visit us. These tests, they come up alongside us and they try with all that they have to intrigue us. To make us other than God has called us to be. To change us. This was the temptation that was before the Baptist pastor and longtime peace organizer A.J. Musty in the 1950s. Musty was an unapologetic pacifist and he was a longtime leader of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and he was deeply concerned about violence in the world, and particularly the growing production in that day of nuclear weaponry. Musty worried for his children, his descendants. He wondered what the future would hold for those who would come after him, and so he began this practice out of this concern. Every morning, he would stand outside the gate of a strategic air command base all alone and he would hold a sign that urged the halting of nuclear armament. Each day, he stood there in silent vigil all by himself, praying in his heart and also praying with his limbs, with his whole body, putting it in action in his commitment. And a reporter heard about this and came to watch, to see for himself. Eventually, he approached Musty he slid up alongside of him and he asked the obvious question, well, Reverend Musty, you're just one man with a sign. Who do you think you are? And do you really think you're going to change anything at all? Well, all these years later, with the vantage point of hindsight, it would seem that that reporter was right. After all, in just a few short years from that day, the world would experience the coldness of war, the horror of the Cuban Missile Crisis. People would build bunkers in their neighborhoods and school children, including my parents in northern Florida. They would practice drills, learning to hide beneath their desks should the worst actually happen. And our vulnerability to this kind of nuclear armament, it continues even to this day, so much so that it's difficult for most of us to imagine a defense strategy or any kind of national security without them. And so it seems that that detractor was right when he slid up next to Reverend Musty when he prodded him with that question, do you really think you can change the world? Who are you anyway? But we should remember Reverend Musty's response that day. My friend, he said, I'm not here to change the world. I'm here to make sure that the world doesn't change me. Which is the greatest of temptations. The most direct of tests. Will you change? 
from the person God is calling you to be. In effect, these attacks from the tempter are an attack on Jesus' baptism itself, which has just preceded this story. Because it's an attack on the idea that Jesus is what God said that Jesus is as the voice rings out from the heavens, this is my beloved child. It's an attack on the idea that Jesus can live a life in reliance on God. And isn't that the same thing that visits us? Will we live like God is with us? Like God's grace is the fount of every blessing about which we sing? Like God loves us and has not left us alone? And the temptation nestles up next to us so often. And once again, this day, it's there with all of its craftiness and its trickery. It invites us to live lives that fear one another. It provokes us to live lives that act as though nothing can change and become cynical and hardened in the face of violence and the frustrating defiant forces of death. It tempts us to acquiesce, to act as if this is just the way things are and ever will be. There's nothing more that can be done. And so the Jordan River, it starts to seem like a distant memory. Our feet start to strike the dry ground where there is no evidence of water and the parting sky becomes a mirage against, amidst the fatalism that sees violence and death is our inevitability. We end up forgetting all of those who gathered around us at the riverside and instead suspicion creeps toward us. We start to see danger in our neighbors. We forget that they have also heard the voice of God, that echo of beloved. If you are a child of God, if you are really a child of God, well then what will you do? The question is before us again this Lent. And it is the most important question because more than the question, what will you give up? Or the question, what will you take on? Lent is more than anything else a season to deepen in our identity. To live more fully as children of God. And when Jesus leaves the desert, that's who He is. He has the look of a person who has walked through it all and emerged more certain of who they are. And Jesus never changed that tempter in the desert, but through His response to the call of God on His life, He ensured that that temptation never changed Him. In fact, He becomes more deeply, more fully who He is as God's Son. And it's that identity so compelling and so full that caused others to then drop their nets and leave their family for a vision of a new world. It's that so, such compelling grace that began to draw others to follow. It's that kind of elegant love that invited those who were broken hearted or broken in body or broken in spirit. Now that's not to say that the test is over because this was merely the first trial. There are plenty of others ahead. The desert marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry and it also reveals the tension in which it will proceed because He will struggle against these forces from the desert all the way to the garden. And time and again, Jesus will remember what He learned in the desert. He will remember that the path to redemption won't come through satisfying his own hunger. But he does go on to feed thousands on the shores of Galilee so that they could come to a deeper understanding of the God who is with them. And he is not the one called to turn stones into bread. He knows this, but he does go on. 
to live a life that passes the love of God around widely. And he never experiences the great coronation as the king of the world, but he does enter the city to the people who have known too much of dominance and empire gathered around shouting Hosanna or literally translated, save us, save our lives. And he never ascends to the pinnacle of the temple. But it's not far from there where he finds in himself and in his identity as God's son enough strength, enough belief, to ascend a hill outside Jerusalem. And that's where he faces his final temptation. A temptation that echoes the words in the desert. If you are the Son of God, if you really are, well then why don't you do something? Why don't you come down from this cross? But he remembers on the cross his commitment in the desert, and so he prays fully with his whole self, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And then do you remember what the centurion says of Jesus at the end of it all? He says, surely, surely, this man was the Son of God. Because Jesus discovered what it means to be Jesus. And so, as of yet, there's just one test remaining in the desert before us. And that is, what does it mean to be you? Amen.